All right. Uh, introduce myself a little bit. About 33 years ago, this time of the year, I became a Christian, which was a miracle. Um, it is always a miracle. It was especially a miracle in my case, um, because I grew up completely pagan. The reason that I enjoy uh, doing these conferences and why most all of this, my wife asked me the other night, we were out for dinner. She's like, have you told somebody else like uh, that's, you know, like one of your coaches or whatever had this conference. And I was like, I, I don't think I can teach somebody else to do this one because it is so particular to, to me, to my backgrounds, to even to my pastoring. So anyways, um, it's fun to be here with you. You get to experience um, this weekend what what. I consider to be the most fun I get to have with churches. Most of the time when Flourish, the organization I lead, gets involved with a church, um, it's because they're having problems or troubles or difficulties. Um, And this is like on the positive side of the equation instead of trying to solve on the negative side of the equation. And so uh, this is great joy for me. Um, So in your nifty folder, if you got one, uh, most of you will have three of these note cards, except the speaker uh, forgot to count the note cards correctly. And so if you don't have nifty note cards, you for sure have one of these. This is a little booklet where you can take notes, extra notes, reflections. I'm going to give you opportunities to do reflecting along the way and talk with people around you, stuff like that. So if you don't have three of these, use the back three pages of this, all right? But you're going to need three blank pages, Either three of these note cards or your three back pages in this. Here's what I want you to do on these three note cards. I want you to write the names of three local, non-family unbelievers that you know. People that don't yet trust Christ. One for each note card or page. Does that make sense? Three people that you know that don't yet know the Lord that are local and non-family and write them at the top of the note card at the top of one of these last three pages. Everybody got it? All right. That's uh, one. You want one person in mind if you can. So I'll tell you who my three are. So um, there's a, a couple next door to us. We live in North Idaho. We live in Coeur d'Alene. And there's a couple next door to us uh, who bought, we bought our houses at the same time and we were fixing them up at the same time last summer. Their names are Brian and Tina. Um, and then we, just on the other side of them, we just had them over for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Is a couple named Megan and Chris, and I'm going to pick Chris, I think, as mine um, for this because he's rather intriguing. So I have Brian, Tina, and Chris. All right, so you should have three names on here. We're going to build these as we go. Okay, so we're going to build on each of these. So keep these handy. Know who your three people are um, because your three are going to be important over time as we go through. All right, uh, if you look at the schedule topics that you have there. Um, we're going to talk this morning about why is a new way of doing evangelism needed. Um, 
And then we're going to talk about uh, a little bit later in the morning, why does this new way of evangelism necessitate a new way of living? And then tonight, um, after you're all snoozy from dinner, uh, we'll talk about what makes evangelism hard. Tomorrow we'll think through um, 1 Corinthians 3 into 4, um, how understanding the gospel ourselves uh, helps us to feel free uh, to proclaim the gospel. And then tomorrow evening, uh, we'll talk about how do we get started. All right, so that's where we're headed. So you want to go to the next page in your notes, which is this guy, um, which is marvelously lots of white space. And the reason is because I'm going to fill this white space. And so when I fill this white space, you fill this white space. All right. So, um, so ground rules for having Matt as the speaker. I am a fast-talking New Yorker. If I say something and you're like, what? Um, all you have to do is go, and I really don't mind being interrupted and being asked to clarify or, or anything because I know I talk too fast and say too much. And so please just stop me. Um, you won't offend me, promise. Very difficult to offend me. If you've got a question in the middle, you're kind of like, wait, hold on, I can't go on until you answer my question. You can do that. You can call a timeout. Um, I will answer your question or defer it if I know I'm going to get to it later, okay? So feel free to interrupt me. That works just fine in my family. So, <clears throat> all right. Why is a new way of doing evangelism needed? Uh, I mentioned to you that 33 years ago, I came to Christ about six months after I came to Christ, someone shared the gospel with me uh, using a, um, a four spiritual laws. Anybody ever seen one of those? A little, uh, it used to be a little yellow booklet, right? Or orangish, all right? So 33 years ago, that was shared with me about six months after I'd become a Christian. And um, I, um, I understood all of it. But that was only after I had spent a solid year talking with Christians and trying to understand what Christianity was about. So we will eventually get to tomorrow night. Um, if you go to the next page in your note pack there, you'll see um, these are used with permission, the generosity um, of InterVarsity Press, for which I'm very thankful. Uh, but this is the, the next page, and then the back of that page are... The expanded version, this is Will Metzger's um, outline, gospel outline um, that's titled Come Home. Um, we're going to go through this in some detail tomorrow night. It's given you there so that you can be looking through it. Um, so when you look at this outline, you go, holy crap, that's a lot. And it's because it is. Uh, one of the reasons that I like using Will Metzger's outline is it is a good reminder that there's actually a lot of things to come to believe to intelligently come to repentance and faith. There really is a lot. One of the reasons why I teach evangelism the way that I do is because it's obvious to me that I had to have all of these, if you imagine these as dominoes, Every single one of these highlighted items, the bolded ones, right? That there's stuff underneath. All of those bolded ones, those are all dominoes that had to fall for me. And they were all dominoes that fell as I had more and more conversations with loving Christians who are around me. Most of the people that you're going to try and reach out to the gospel to here believe nothing of any of these bolded headings. That's where they actually are in their belief system. And so it used to be that you could just pull four spiritual laws out of your pocket 30 years ago or whatever, and you could share it with people, and they would be working with inside of the same frame of reference 
They would understand what you're talking about because more than likely they'd grown up in church or they had some Christian backgrounds. But I live in the West, and I've lived in the West for the last 14 years, 14 and a half years. And you meet people in the West that have never darkened the door of a church, which is exactly what I was like. And so what I found is the work that we're going to do over these next couple of days is stuff that we developed to do evangelism in West Seattle, Washington, uh, where I was a pastor for a decade. Um, So I was a PCA pastor, two different churches. Along the way, I got into coaching pastors and churches and then ended up helping start Flourish um, in 2015. And now I've been doing, um, uh, all I do is Flourish for the last four years. So um, I travel to stuff like this. I coach pastors like Jeff. We walk alongside churches. I go tomorrow night to a church in Columbia, Maryland, where I'm doing, um, it's crazy. Um, My wife says I'm crazy. She's right. Um, I'm doing half-time interim work for a church without a pastor. So we do all kinds of stuff. Um, for churches, and I've been doing that full-time for four years. Um, this is more fun than that, I'll tell you that. So um, so the reason that I like this gospel outline is that it reminds you that there are a lot of distinct individual beliefs that people have to come to over time to intelligently become a Christian. We forget that if you've grown up in the church, because you accumulated these beliefs over time by growing up in church, by going to Sunday school, by listening to sermons, maybe by having Christian parents, Right? But most of the people that you're going to talk to have accumulated none of these beliefs. In fact, they've accumulated the opposites, as we're going to look at in a second here. So why is a different form of evangelism needed? It's because people's belief system has changed over the last at least 30 years. That's the main reason, okay? So it's not that these things that are in the outline are not true. They're not helpful. They are. They're true. They're biblical. They're helpful. They're the things that most of all of this Um, you already believe more than likely if you're self-consciously a Christian. Maybe if you're not self-consciously a Christian, you look at this and you go, wow, there's some things here that I don't yet believe. That's good. Keep listening. Keep looking at it. You might even be surprised by some of the things that are here. You're like, that's a part of being a Christian. That's good too. It's good to realize that it is an entire other worldview that entails lots and lots of beliefs, Um, which is why I like this outline because it reminds you of that. Um, This is overwhelming enough that you have no sense at all that I can do this in one sitting. That's very good. Um, The the bad thing about the four spiritual laws, true, the Lord used it in many people's lives, is it gave you the belief that you could sit down and have one conversation with somebody and have them intelligently become a Christian. Uh, And maybe uh, there's certainly segments of people when Bill Bright first developed that in the 50s that had just sort of fallen away from a, a belief system they'd grown up in and they just needed to be reminded of it, and the Spirit worked, and but a boom right? Yeah, they came to faith or came back to faith, whichever. Not where people are now. They're in a very different place. Um, and I'm going to try and illustrate that for you here uh, in just a second. All right, so people's belief system has changed over the last 30 years. The easiest way to describe this, um, and you've got a blank white space there because I'm going to do uh, a diagram that I have no idea how it's going to go perfectly because it goes differently, a little differently each time. So you get a one and only today because I have no idea how I'm going to do it today. So let's go. All right. What is the difference between, the prime difference between the way that most people uh, believe now and the way that Christians, biblical Christians, um, believe? So if you think about... Um, We're going to think about the, okay, so uh, hopefully you brought your thinking cap with you this morning. You're going to need it. Um, We're going to talk about first the nature of reality. What is the nature of reality? Okay. So from a 
biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective, the nature of reality is two. There is, and I'm going to try and draw big enough that those of you that are in the back and clear enough that you can read the words and see the diagrams. So, um, in biblical belief system, the nature of reality is two. There's the Creator, which is difficult to symbolize God trying to be um, self-consciously reverential to God, represented by an ark, which if you remember, your math has neither beginning nor end. Okay? goes infinitely in both directions. So there's the Creator, and there's the creation. You think of uh, Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created. So there's two. There's God, the Creator, and the creation that He made. And so, uh, what we believe, what biblical Christians believe, is that the nature of reality is two. There are two uh, aspects, two entities that make up reality. God the Creator and His creation distinct from Him. Uh, And so, uh, one of my seminary professors is a guy named Dr. Peter Jones. The way that he has put this so helpfully and most everything you're going to see on this board in the next half an hour is completely what I learned from him. Um, some modifications of my own stuff, but anyways, is uh, twoism. All right? This is to be contrasted with the worldview of what most of the people that you know who don't know the Lord, what they believe is that the nature of reality is one. There is no infinite personal God distinct from the world He made. No infinite personal God distinct from the world. Okay, and we can call this oneism because the nature of reality here in oneism is that there's only one entity in reality. The nature of reality is only one. There is only what we would call that which is made. Okay, so this has distinct consequences that you may or may not have thought about before. Um, oh, I we'll have to catch up in my outline where I was. All right. Why is it important to realize the difference between these two? The gospel is an urgent appeal from the creator, distinct from the world, to creatures saying, come back, stop being rebellious, lay down your weapons of warfare, turn from sin back to me and worship me, not that which is made. That's what the gospel is. If you do not believe that there is an infinite personal God who is distinct from the world, but made it and works in it, so if you're over here, and you use the word, I never use lowercase, but here, um, and you use the word God in trying to present the gospel to somebody, and this is their belief system, they're thinking of something very, very different than you are. That's why it's lowercase. Um... Anybody know the Steve Martin song, Atheists Don't Have No Songs? Okay, if you don't. Jeff, we have to get that queued up and play it at some point. I have it on my phone if you've got a plug-in. All right? It's hysterical. Just, you need a, you need a humor point. We'll, we'll take care of this, all right? You ready? Okay, we'll get it. 
Jeff's like, what? Okay. All right. So if, you, if, if the person you're talking to functionally lives over here, and there's a whole bunch of things that happen over here that will fill in the why it's a big white blank circle. But if you say the word, do you believe in God? Or my wife's favorite evangelism leadoff. How do you conceive of God? That's my wife's favorite evangelistic leadoff, which is great. How do you conceive of God? Right? And if when you use the word God, somebody's over in this space, they're thinking about something very, very different than you are when you use it. And that's why it's important to know, well, what do you, what do you actually think? Okay? So, um, let's distinguish some things that are different between the two of these. Uh, let's think first about authority. All right? So, in this system, who has authority? All right, so God has authority. All right? Why does he have authority? Say it again louder. So he made everything. And so he has authority over that which he made. That makes sense? That track for you? All right, makes sense, right? Um, when God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this, don't eat of that, he's exercising his authority. They're rebelling against it shows that they were listening to the authority of Satan or their own authority, right? Okay, they were autonomous, a lot of themselves. All right, so over here, God has the authority. Over here, how does authority work? So sometimes happens by power, my own eyes, knowledge. Used to be. Consensus. Right? Money sometimes determines authority, doesn't it? Right? Well, ultimately, right, when you... And, of course, this is invisible to the people you're trying to bring the gospel to, but it needs to stay visible for us right? This authority struggle is between God and Satan, right? So we know that. The person you're talking to doesn't. You have to remember that. They have no knowledge of that, all right? So authority here, the other way that I would put it um, is that it is merely horizontal. And that is super, super important for other things that we're going to detail out. Here, authority is vertical. It is if you will, this is passe, people don't like it. It is top-down authority. It doesn't mean all human relationships should be top-down authority, but it is in terms of how God exercises authority with us. So in twoism, when you think about things, this verticality, right? That this authority is, is mostly vertical. The way that we think about a lot of things involves trying to understand how God thinks about it and for us to shape our thinking after Him. Right? That's, that's uh, be renewed in the uh, knowledge of your minds, right? And what's that renewing, right? We're given a word, we're given the church, we're given discipleship, we're given um, preaching, right? Why? Because so that our minds would be shaped according to God's word that is his speech to us, right? So the authority works very much, it's, it's very vertical, right? It's not that there isn't horizontal relationship, right? That's what's going on in evangelism is horizontal relationship between humans. But the way that we primarily think of authority and the way that things work, it's going to have more implications in a second, is it's mostly vertical with some horizontal. Over here, 
There is no verticality. It is merely horizontal. Everything is horizontal. There is no word from the outside because there is no outside. There is only inside. That's going to get more important as we keep going. That it's, it's merely horizontal. Okay? Where here in twoism, um, what I would say is that it's mostly vertical. Um, so a place that you can see this that is important, you look at Psalm 51 and David and his repentance. And of course, he's got lots of repentance. Repenting he needs to do with Bathsheba. He ought to repent to Uriah, but he's dead. And he ought to repent to the people, right? Because the first sin that David did was in the spring when kings, you remember, go off to war. That was his first sin. Is that he had a calling from God as to what he was supposed to do, and he didn't do it. And not fulfilling that calling, then he sees Bathsheba falls into temptation. You got this whole series of sins that is indeed horizontal. But when he repents, you remember what David says? Against, against you and you only. What? Against you and you only? Because by the working of the Spirit, David saw that what, it's still stunning to even try and get this out of my mouth, but it, most of the sin was against God. Despite all of the sin you could see against people, the Spirit worked in such a way that David could see that it was mostly against God. That's actually really, really important to think through. Here, there is no verticality. There is no outside. There's no word from outside. There's no sin against somebody who is outside. All sin is only possible against people, if, and, and even sin there gets redefined. There's certainly sin in this, in this world, um, but it's very much redefined because it's merely horizontal. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Let's think about sin a little bit. Um, what is, what's sin uh, look like here? Right? Sin is mostly characterized in the Scriptures. It certainly has um, effects, right? We talk about, if you're a catechism person, right, that uh, um, Jeff and I were on a walk on the trail yesterday, and we were talking about this a little bit, that some sins are more heinous primarily because of their effects against people, right? Um, so some sins can be more heinous uh, than others because they're effects against people, but they are primarily against God, right? They're rebellion against God. Right? So it's primarily a, a vertical sense. Um, over here, and it's, and it's um, against um, a written law, right? So we're given the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so, um, so that's when we think of, when we use the word sin or sinful, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about, right? Over here, I'm going to put this in quotation marks. What is sin? Okay. What you say is wrong, right? So kind of a personal standard, right? Or, ahead of myself, or what the culture says. 
Um, it being merely, merely horizontal, some of you who've got gray on top, um, like me, that w- when I was growing up, um, if you know sort of broad cultural categories, uh, the U.S., even the Western countries, primarily the plane upon which people thought was um, guilt and innocence, right? You were either guilty or you were innocent. Um, the culture that my kids have grown up in that is much more like this, um, it is much more um, shame honor. Um, the reason you can have a cancel culture is because uh, this is working merely horizontally. And so my standing before other humans is the most important thing that can happen. And so if I lose my standing before other humans, my life is functionally over. Because there is no standing to have with, with God, what we'll look at tomorrow morning, uh, in the way that God worked in the life of the Apostle Paul. There's no standing with God that could sustain you if you didn't have standing with humans. Because there is no God to have standing with. Because there's no one who's outside. There's no infinite personal God to have standing with. And so if all you had was standing with other humans, well, that's life or death. And you can see that evidence in our culture is much more shame and honor culture now than it is a guilt and innocence culture. Because that vertical plane's been lost. Does that make sense? I know I went really quick through that. But as I, especially younger people, you're like, mm-hmm, that's the culture I live in. Right, TJ? Yeah. No, it exists. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. So turning merely merely personal affront into vertical affront with God. And that's actually really important because I think that for... Did I cut you off? Yeah. Okay. Not cool at all. No, absolutely not cool. All right, let me keep going because there's more issues to pull out. The reason, uh, I suppose I should tell you about the story of why we do things in the sequence we're doing. Um, You're being experimented on. All of you twitch your noses like your little rabbits. You're being experimented on. I used to do this as the first 10 minutes of the last talk. And the, as I've done it over time, people are just like, could we have had more of that and more earlier so that we would have had more time to chew on it and use it? And I was like, okay, I will take that feedback as well as yours is about how to make this better. But I'm giving you this in the beginning so that you can be thinking about it and chewing on it as you go. And in particular with your three people, because the great likelihood is all three of my people are over here. So I'm trying to think about what are the conversations that I want to have with them over time that they might move from here to here, right? And that's what I'm going to try and 
try and help you with. All right. So um, sin over here is something that happens between people. There is no against you and you only. So whatever standard that I have for you, if you break it, I call you a sinner. You've done me wrong. Can you... Is there any answer to that? There is no answer to that. Because there is no standard to appeal to. Now you might try and appeal to a cultural standard, but any of you who agree on top realize that the cultural standard has completely changed. And what used to be sin is no longer sin culturally. And what used to be right, righteousness, appropriate or whatever, is now is now sin. And so it's very, very odd. For those of you who've been around for a while, it's really weird. It feels upside down. And I do this because I want to help people to realize that what's happened is not just that individual beliefs have changed. They have. But the reason that individual beliefs have changed is because there's been underneath it a wholesale change in worldview. Okay, so that's why you do this here and I'm trying to alert you to this. This is the world that I grew up in. And there's a lot that has to, a lot of dominoes that have to fall if you live in this world to end up in this world. And that's what I'm trying to alert you to. All right. So uh, the other thing is, uh, well, if I keep going down my list, um, there is in this system, there is a givenness to things. There is a um, made for about things. Um, so the, um, the one that's the easiest to highlight, and the one that'll make people the least uncomfortable um, is the distinction between male and female. So God is in favor of distinctions. God is distinct from the creation. So this is Romans 1, right? This is the sketch of Romans 1 and sort of Paul's argument, right? That what, what, was the, what is the problem with pagans as you look at Romans 1? They look at reality wrong. So, they look at, so their cosmology, their view of reality is messed up. So that means they end up with a messed up view of God. So they don't give Him thanks. And what do they do? They end up worshiping creation. They exchange the one true God and they worship created things. And when they worship created things, this gets messed up, particularly related first to sexuality, but if you look carefully as you go all the way through that chapter, although this is where Paul starts and it's important because he talks about, he talks about broken sexuality as against nature. So Paul's evidencing there when he talks about against nature that there is a givenness to the world. There's a madeness. There are purposes for things. There are distinctions between things, light, dark, male, female. Right? You go all the way through Genesis. Over here... 
There is no givenness. There is nothing that you can say that is made for that. This is why you end up with something like birthing people. And although we laugh at it and we're kind of like, why would you end up in something as ridiculous as that from our perspective? It makes perfect sense within this worldview to end up with things like this, where within this worldview, you get things championed that make God very, very sad because they're not according to what He made. It's people trying to figure out how to be happy and how to handle life in a broken world. They experience the brokenness, but there's no hope for the brokenness, and they're trying to find their way in the world without anybody. And so... And they have no sense because there's nobody outside that can get definition to things or create definite distinctions between things. There's no givenness. And this is super, super important because most of the root of the things that uh, if you uh, have been around for a while, you got gray hair on top, and you look at how much the world is different than when you grew up, what's happened is if you have no givenness, if you have no distinctions, if you have no creator that made things for certain purposes, and this is all, what's important over here is that it's all self-defined. Right? You might choose to let the culture help define it for you, but ultimately it is self-defined because there is no definer. And if it's self-defined, then you have the right and the authority Perhaps the privilege, although it feels like a burden to me, to define everything yourself. And so when you see people actively defining things for themselves, they're just, they are merely evidencing this worldview. That's all they're doing. Now, are they hurting themselves? Are they hurting others? Are they offending God? Is it difficult culturally? Yeah, it is all of those things. But they have no knowledge of that. They're trying to make their way in a broken world as a broken person with no help. It's important that you see the people around you who don't know Christ that way. Are they rebellious? Yes, but they have no consciousness that they're being rebellious. So if we treat them as merely rebellious, we're not helping them. We're not being compassionate to them. There's a lot of things that have to, there's a lot of dominoes that have to fall for them to even realize that they're rebellious because they don't even think that there's somebody to rebel against because there's no external, infinite, personal God because they live within this. Tracy. So, right, so I think that what they have is a view of this. Yes. So it, it is um, because we're made for God, 
Many people maintain some view of a higher power, um, something like that, right? Because we're made for God. But it is definitely, if you dig in, right, it's definitely a God who's, who's over on this side of the line, right? And so that's, that's important because it's not that people here don't claim that there's a God. It's just not a God like the scriptures have. So, TJ. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. No objective truth. Yes. Without the good. Super helpful. Thank you. Jeff. Can you hear me? Am yes. I the, am I on the speaker? Okay. Yes. It's the privilege of working in the sound booth. Piggybacking on both what Tracy and TJ were saying is, um, and we talked about this some, Yeah. Uh, so I don't think I'm saying anything different, is uh, when... When some when you when you're saying like those of you with gray on your head you remember a day where it was different it, uh, it wasn't that the olden days were better because we read in Romans one back in Paul's day people were Absolutely. still doing all of this wrong but there were perhaps some vestiges yes. in modernism of this idea of absolute truth but it wasn't the dis, the personal infinite creator God distinct from creation so that. So what TJ is saying is, is exactly right. It's still oneism. Right. They had this idea of authority, but ultimately it still begins with them. It, and same with Tracy is like people have always looked for the transcendent and the infinite, but but it ultimately is not a, an infinite creator God who is distinct from his creation, who is the source of all truth and goodness and beauty. Yep. It is a God that I seek out and find on my own, where ultimately I become my own arbiter of what is good. Of what's and truth. And yeah. True. So this is why you also end up over here when you look at the world's religions. And most of the world's religions have sacred texts. Right? So you look at, um, my mother uh, was uh, Jewish, and so we nominally celebrated Jewish holidays growing up, not, not actual practicing Jews. But when you look at um, Jews, they have the, um, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Talmud, right? You look at Muslims, they have the Quran. You look at Buddhists, uh, Buddhists have writings, Hindus, right? Everybody, all the world's religions have sacred texts. But within this view, all of these... Um, have um, they're the the core of them is that they're the same, and the sacred texts are equal, but they're equal in the sense that um, I determine what I would like to take from them. I had a conversation recently um, with somebody, and we're talking about the Bible. And they're kind of like, yeah, I don't, I, I just don't take that part. And I'm like, now that's very, very interesting. 
Because what that evidence is, is that I'm actually over the text. I'm not under the text as though it was the infinite personal God outside of the world speaking to the world. And I'm under the text. Because over here, I'm actually over the text. I'm picking what I want from the text because I'm actually, functionally, I'm God. So that's important. It's not that there's loss of God. It's who's God. Over here, functionally, I'm God. And so that's important because people are just like, well, I like this from Buddhism. And like, there's a lot of Jews because Jew- Judaism, even like conservative, like, like genuine Judaism, is very sterile. It's impersonal because it's a monopersonal God. And so there's not a lot of, there's not a sense of love within even conservative, like Old Testament believing Judaism because God's monopersonal. So it can't be the same thing with uh, Islam, right? So there's not, there's not a lot of love. There's not a lot of, um, personalness to it and so you end up with things where people want to add something to judaism to make it feel transcendent or spiritual and so you can go if you still have barnes and noble most of them run a business but you can go into barnes and noble used to be that you couldn't go into the spirituality section and you'd see a section that's labeled jubu because there's this there's this addition of buddhism to judaism because there's no sense of um, spirituality in conservative Judaism. There's a text, there's a law, but that's about it. There's no personal God, so you need some sense of spirituality. So people are adding Buddhism to Judaism. Uh, actually, all of the major religions that don't live under a text, Jeff and I were talking about this yesterday, have some, um, some kind of, of esoteric um, that they add to it, some kind of sense of spirituality. So over here, you get people that say, particularly out in the West where I live, um, I'm spiritual but not religious. Because to be religious is to live under the authority of somebody. So I want something to feel like I'm not the only person in the world because that's a very scary thought. I want there to be something more than me, but I want to retain authority. And so that's over here. I want there to be something more than me. It's not that people over here are not spiritual. They want to be spiritual. They're made for it. But in their rebellion, they want to stay in charge. So spiritual, not religious. All right. Um, So um, here, what you have um, is a, and this is, um, I appreciate the modernism, um, postmodernism distinction, because over here, you have a fixed morality because there's a speaker who has a certain character. God has a certain character. He made male and female. He says adultery is wrong each and every time. Right? It used to be as a holdover um, that, that adultery was sort of looked down on in American culture, but it's not anymore. Right? So over here, you have a as my wife would write it, you have a flexi morality, right? You don't have a fixed morality, you have a flexible morality based upon primarily what the culture is saying. So over here, adultery each and every time is wrong. Over here, it's kind of like, ah, you know, I think I'd like to trade my wife in. She's not as young and as pretty as she used to be. And everybody looks at it and goes, 
Oh, okay. You be you. Now, there's an aspect of you be you that's very, very interesting, actually. There's a, there's a cry there. There's a heart cry there that's important to listen to. Over here, each and every person is made distinct and unique by God. Each one of you are a handmade original. I'll, I'll mention this in the sermon tomorrow in a different way. God is interested in each and every person He made. Psalm 139 tells you that God shapes each one within the womb distinctly. I looked at Milo last night, and even if I had never, ever met him before, upon the first look of looking at Milo, I can see that he's TJ's kid. The resemblance is uncanny. People say the same thing about my daughter and my wife. And we, when we hear that, we go, oh, he's the knockoff of dad. But do you realize that each and every one, each and every person, God makes individually and distinct. We're made to be distinct individuals who bear the image of God in unique ways that no other person can. And so we have a hunger and longing not only for the love of the Creator that made us, but to live out the distinctiveness that He's given to each one of us. I get to do what I was made for. That's why I smile so much. <laughs> this is what I was made for. So when you hear people say, you be you, recognize that there's, there's is, there, is there this? Yeah. There's that, and that's sad, and it's not awesome, and it ends up hurtful for them and the people around them, because sin always does that. But there's a heart cry there. There's a heart cry to be able to live out the distinct individuality that God gave me. I need to hear that. There's a lot of heart cry in people if you listen to them. We who live in this world and hold to this fixed morality, we're very tempted to say, you're doing wrong, and for that to be our lead-off. And are people doing wrong? Sure they are. Tons of it. Me too. I'm doing a lot of wrong. But is that where the person needs me to start? Is that how to be neighborly to them? Or could I listen to their heart cry and try and understand it. And could I walk the gospel in that door? That's what we'll talk about tomorrow evening, the evening gathering. How do you find these doors to walk into people's lives with, with the gospel? Okay? So, I want you to be careful. We're tempted to be very judgmental. But the people around you are image bearers. They're made by God. Their heart cries for God. And we need to learn how to listen, be patient, and listen for their heart cry and go, huh. Yeah, individuality is super important to the God that I serve. Really? Could we talk about that? And that's a very different door to walk into than we're used to. But there's lots of doors to walk into with people, if you're listening. Okay. Um, last one here, because I'm supposed to be done already, I think. Um, the place of feelings. The place of feelings. Here, as creatures... Feelings are super important. 
God has an emotional structure. If you've never read, if you're a reader and you've never read um, B.B. Warfield's The Emotional Life of Our Lord, you should. It's an absolutely marvelous essay that will um, expand your mind. If you've never read Paul Miller's Love Walked Among Us, it's entirely worthwhile to try and understand about particularly the way that God thinks uh, the way that God emotes and how important that is. Feelings are super important. They're part of our makeup in the image of God. In this world, feelings are important, but they do not rule. They are not the arbiter of truth. Over here, what you primarily see, or many times see, is that feelings rule. Um, so, uh, let me see if I can say this as uh, carefully. If I feel as though I am a female caught in a male body, then I believe that I have the authority to act on those feelings and make my body match the way that I feel. Now, um, I have people close to me who have had those kinds of feelings. It is extraordinarily difficult if that is the way in which you experience broken human condition. And we need to realize how difficult it must be to be a person that that is the internal struggle that they feel. And you've got to just weep because that must be insanely difficult. Okay? And also say, kindly, over time, in conversation, in context of an entire worldview, not the first time out the gate, but along the way as you're friends with somebody, right? That this worldview has no solution to this at all. It has no way of making sense of it. It has, no, um, it has no Savior, it has no Redeemer, it has no answer. Over here, when we think about that, we go, yeah, I feel messed up too. And hopefully you can say that because you actually believe it. That you sense your own sinfulness in a way that you go, I am messed up. I am distorted also. I might not be distorted in that way, but I'm distorted in lots of other ways. And I feel very mixed up inside as well. And the reason that that is for both you and me, because God made a world and He made it good. And then the fir our first parents sinned and it introduced all kinds of brokenness across all dimensions of human life. In our thoughts, in our feelings, in our desires, and we live in an entirely messed up world. And this is why we need Jesus to come for us. Because we're all very messed up. And our hope is in Him, not that somehow we can snap somebody out of the way that they feel. I can't snap myself out of the way that I feel. Well, I would expect that somebody else could. So it's important. There's no explanation for why that is. It's paralyzing. Over here, there's at least explanation for how that could be and hope that it could be different. It might not be until the life of the world to come. It might not be in this life. That's why the creed 
Are, are we saying the creed tomorrow, Jeff? I don't know. I didn't look at the liturgy. Now we're saying the Nicene Creed tomorrow? Hallelujah! All right, I'm going to encourage you. Oh, good. Good deal. That's awesome. I didn't set that up. However, I'm going to encourage you today to plan not to lie tomorrow. I'm encouraging you to pull out your hymnals, look at the Nicene Creed, pray repentance for yourself, and ask the Lord to give you genuine repentance that you will not lie tomorrow when you say, I look to the life of the world to come. Do you? One of the advantages of getting older is that you actually do. (laughs) We have a hope. This is here. The reason that people panic and they invent all kinds of slogans is because if this is all that you have, the, the old soap opera, One Life to Live, Now we laugh, right? But here, you got one shot, baby. You got to get it all the first time we go around because you only go around once. We have all of these cultural slogans that even some of them preceded this big transition that some of us have experienced, right? But those cultural slogans basically say there is no life for the world to come. There's only this life, so you got to get it all now. This is why people have bucket lists. Do you realize that the new heavens and new earth, there are... Very, very few things that won't be there. There won't be sin. That'll be good. Particularly for the people around you. It doesn't appear that there'll be new marriages and children. So if you're going to take your shot, you better do it now. That comes with its own hardships. If you've been married and had kids, you understand that. Okay. Um, That's it. Everything else is there. That's what we're told in the Scriptures. That's why we confess that we look to the life of the world to come. We do not have one life to live, friends. We have two. This one is short. Randy Elkhorn calls it the dot. The line is yet to come. And the line, like an arc, has a beginning but not an end. Let's be careful that we don't fall into thinking. This is the origin. I'm going to pick on a couple of you without knowing it. Know that I'm trying to be an equal opportunity offender. All right? I really am. This is why people have bucket lists. Because they think they've only got one shot to have all the experiences that they wish to have. If it's not sin, friends, and you shouldn't wish to do sin, just letting you know. If it's not sin, you'll get the shot to do it again. As much as you want for as long as you want. There's much more important things to do now. Do you know there's only one thing? I saw your hand. I'll come back to you. I promise. Do you know that there's one thing that you cannot do in heaven once you get there? You can't help anybody else get there. That's fixed. Your life impact is done. That is a distinct privilege of now. This is your shot to help other people experience the life of the world to come. My encouragement to you is to use it for that because you will get to do everything else as much as you want for as long as you want. But this you get one shot for, and that's to help other people come to faith.
Arden. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole profession. Some of us have to learn new skills. Were you telling me I'm supposed to shut up and pray? That's what Jeff says. I'm going to shut up and pray. Father, um, I pray that everything that's on the board here is helpful and what's not helpful that you'd help all of us forget. Uh, the people around us uh, do believe not just a thing or two different than us. Not they, Many of them don't just need a little tweak in belief. But it's a, a wholesale difference. A wholesale change. The people whose names are on my cards are far, far, far from belief. So give us hearts that are bent towards people, towards praying for them, towards being with them, towards loving them, towards hearing their stories, towards listening for their heart cry, and beginning to learn how to bring the gospel to them. Give us hearts like that. Help us to take up the privilege that we have now and to be willing to hold off on other things knowing that they'll be there in the life of the world to come. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.